doing things a little bit different this morning. If you've been here before, normally uh, the vast majority of our sermons here at Del Cerro are what's called expositional, meaning uh, we preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, paragraph through paragraph. And we do this because of what we believe the Bible is, what all Christians believe the Bible is, the infallible, inerrant, inspired words of God. But at times, it's helpful to pause and bring all of Scripture to bear on a certain topic, especially a topic that's particularly important or relevant in our lives today. Now, of course, there are many important issues across the headlines today, but one issue that no one can escape today is the issue of abortion. Now, you might be tempted to think, as I have been, that since Roe fell, praise God, the issue is, is pretty much settled, right? Like, that's kind of what everything was angling at. Now that that's over, well, pretty much the discussion is over. It's completely wrong, but I'm often tempted to think that. It's actually quite the opposite. The battle, the debates has only intensified and will only intensify as all the things go to the states and all the legal matters get sorted out. My social media feeds are still filled with memes and arguments for and against abortion. Abortion is still in the headlines every day. Just yesterday morning, there was a new headline. Georgia abortion restrictions spark new debate over claims to fetal personhood. And brothers and sisters, there is no neutrality on this issue. Let us not be deceived. We cannot sit on the fence on this issue. We cannot sit this on the sidelines in this issue. We as Christians must think clearly about abortion. And to do this, God has not left us in the dark. We are not left guessing. God has spoken clearly and sufficiently to us in his word. So this morning what we're going to do is go step by step through some different passages to understand what does the Bible teach on this issue. And here's what we're going to come to. Abortion is a horrific sin. But Jesus is a powerful and willing Savior. And so that's my aim this morning, is to either convince you or reassure you that abortion is a great sin and that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. Now to do this, well, where should we start? I mean, the Bible's a big book. We could, we could talk about all sorts of different things when it comes to this issue. But when we come to issues of of life and death, when we come to these these great moral issues, we have to start with God. Who is God? Because what you believe, what I believe, what we believe about God will determine the conclusion that we come to on this issue. So let's talk about God. I know, weird in church, right? So the first thing Now, this might sound basic, but I think you'll understand why it's so necessary. The first thing that I want you to see in Scripture this morning is this. God has created everything that comes into existence. Okay, God creates everything. We've seen this especially clearly in our series in Genesis, if you've been with us. God is the origin. He's the source of all that comes into existence, of everything that comes into being. Everything. Nothing exists outside of God's will. And this applies, again, to everything. Every animal, every plant, every human, every planet, every angel, every demon. All things spiritual, all things physical. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created and still actively creates them all. Now, of course, we could turn to many different passages to see this in Scripture. But look for a second with me at Psalm 146, and there's going to be a lot of passages this morning. If you want to turn with me, I would love that. They're also going to be up on the screen. Psalm 146, verse 5 through 6. This is what it says. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, 
whose hope is in the Lord his God. What God is this? What does he say? Who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. God is the creator of all things. Sunday School 101. John 1 also makes this case. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, speaking about Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And just in case you didn't get that, John doubles down again. And without him was not anything made that was made. God is the sole creator of all things. The only reason that anything exists is because God wants it to. He's created the heaven, the earth. He's created humans. God created human reproduction, everything. So that's the first thing. God is a creator. Secondly, what, is this, where, where, what, where does this, what does this imply? Well, this implies this. Because God is the creator, he is the owner and the ruler of all of creation. Again, this, this is basic Christianity 101, but it's incredibly important for us to think clearly on this issue. Everything and everyone is his. All authority is his. God sovereignly and rightfully rules over the universe, over the physical realm and the spiritual realm. All of it is his. Psalm 24, verse 1, very plainly makes this case. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, or some translations say, and everything in it. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. You see it clearly. Everything is God's. The world and all those who dwell in it. That includes everything. Why? Because he created it. He sustains it. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. God is not like some watchmaker who set everything to go and then just takes his hands off and let it run its course. That's not what the Bible teaches. God's creator, he is the owner, he is the ruler. Thirdly, God has created all things. Why? The Bible tells us, for his glory. The purpose of all of creation is God's glory. He created it and us for himself. Now again, there are so many scriptures we could look at. But Paul makes this especially clear in Romans 11, verse 33, 33 through 36. Listen to what he says. And this really sums up all three of these ideas. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Then listen to what Paul says. For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That just sums up all three of those ideas. From him are all things. Through him are all things, and to him are all things. God has created all things. He's the source of all life. He owns everything. He's sovereign and ruler of all. All things were created for his glory, for his purposes. As Ephesians says, to the praise of his glorious grace. All things are from him through him, and to him. You are not the reason for all things. I am not the reason for all things. God's glory is the reason for all things. Now, again, this applies to physical stuff, plants and animals, but this applies to you and I as well. God created us, and this means he rules over us. He, he is the reason that we exist. We exist for the same reason as everything else for his glory primarily. The reason that God created humanity 
was for the purpose of glorifying himself, so that we might worship him and reflect his glory to all of creation. That is the purpose of mankind. That is the purpose of all life, according to the scriptures. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Again, it's inescapable. He says this, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and, here we go, for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Do you see it? There's one God, we exist from him, and we exist for him. We exist from him, and we exist for him, for his purposes, for his glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism sums this up very famously. The very first question of the catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And that's an old way of saying, what is the main purpose of humankind? And the answer is this, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the reason that you and I and everyone in the entire world exists, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The purpose of our existence is not our own personal happiness. The purpose of our existence is is not our own personal pleasure and ease. Now, of course, these things are not bad. These things, happiness, pleasure, these are gifts from God, but they are not the reason or purpose of why we exist. And because they are not the purpose of our lives, because they are not the reason for our lives, they must not be how we make decisions about what is right and what is wrong. But let's go a little deeper. Speaking of human beings. Now, when we say humanity was created for the glory of God, in a sense that can sound very general, right? But humanity was not created in general for the glory of God. God creates specific people. Every specific person is created to glorify God. Nothing is random. Nothing is meaningless. Again, God did not just set things into motion at creation and then take his hands off and say, let's see how this thing plays out. No. Every human being that is conceived is conceived by God's plan and God's timing by God's hand for his own glory. The Apostle Paul makes this clear in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind a life and breath and everything, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and all the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, what Paul is teaching us here is that every human, every every human from all colors and genders and languages and ethnicities are all created by God. What time you live is created by God. Where you live is created by God. All of it is determined by God. There is no such thing as someone who's simply a product of nature or chance or coincidence. There is no such thing as a person who is an accident in the eyes of God. God does not make mistakes. As the text says, God himself is the one who gives life and breath to all mankind. Every human being that walks this earth does so because of the gracious action of God. Now, on the surface, this doesn't necessarily make humans unique, right? Uh, we, We could say the same thing as we've said here about the animals as well. They are created for God's glory. Trees are created for God's glory. So what makes humans unique? 
Now, this is really critical to understanding the, the issue of abortion. What makes humans unique? Why are we different from the animals? Why are we different than the plants? And the, the biblical reason is this. Humans are uniquely created in the image of God. The image of God. Nothing else is created in the image of God except for human beings. We are uniquely created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says this, very plainly, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is clear and explicit. Again, created in the image of God to bear the likeness of God. But what does this mean? What does it mean to bear the image of God? How is this relevant to the issue of abortion? Well, if you want a further explanation, a detailed explanation of what this means, I would point you back to Pastor Rudolph's sermons early in Genesis. Really help you understand this idea. But the summary version of this, what it means to be created in the image of God, is that every human being is uniquely created to represent God here on this earth. Every human being, every single one is created uniquely to represent God on earth, to bear his image to all of creation. That is who God is, and that is who humanity is. Now, I know that's a lot. It's like a fire hose. Now, God is the creator and sustainer. Again, he gives life to all humans. Humans are in his image for his glory. Now, again, before we get to abortion, we've we've got to lay the groundwork. So let's think first, think about this. Think about everything that we've talked about so far, and then think about the sin of murder. What is murder? Simple dictionary definition, murder is the unjustified taking of a human life. Now, everyone knows the Bible clearly says that murder is a sin. Pretty much everyone, even non-Christians, agree that murder is a bad thing. Do you need a proof text? Exodus 20, 13. You shall not murder. <laughs> Can't get any clearer than that. But, but what is at the, the foundation? What is at the root of why murder is so horrible? Why, when we hear about a murder, do we, do we cringe? Do we think that's not fair? That's unjust? Well, the answer is found in this understanding that human beings bear the image of God. We are unique. Genesis 9-6 directly connects the image of God and murder. It says this, this is God's command to Noah. Whoever sheds the blood of man, that's murder, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. You see, murder is such a horrible sin because to murder someone is to destroy the image of God. And to destroy God's image is an act of hostility against God himself. This idea of image-bearing uh, was, is, is not unique to the Bible. It was well known in, in ancient cultures. So if a king sent a messenger to another king, that messenger was to be treated as the king himself, right? So any act of hostility towards this messenger would be taken as an act of hostility towards the king. This is how almost all the ancient wars were started. You can think of there, I mean, there's plenty of movies that that represent this, but think of that famous scene. Even if you haven't seen the movie, I'm sure you've seen the scene from the movie 300. Not recommending the movie, but the scene where he says, this is Sparta, and kicks the guy down into the well, okay? It's a very visual picture. Well, what happens there? What is he doing? He's not just murdering someone. The king, King Leonidas, is starting a war, See, the Persian messenger came to him saying, here we offer terms of peace if you'll do this, this, and this. His response was, no, he murders the guy. And what he knows and everyone else knows in that time is that by doing that, he had just defied the king of Persia. 
He had essentially told the king of Persia, I defy you and I want to murder you as well. That's why the war was started. That is the message that destroying an image sends. That is the message that murder sends. That's why it's such a horrific sin. An unjustified taking of a human life sends the message to God, I defy you. It's an act of hostility. Why? Because of what we said earlier. We're created, not for ourselves, for God's glory, for God's purpose. And so to take a human image bearer that was created for God's glory and God's purposes and to kill them is to defy God himself. Now you can see where the logic leads. If a baby in the womb is a human being made in the image of God, then it's pretty much case closed, right? And and I would say it is. The implication is clear. To end a human life, whether in the womb or outside of it, is murder. To murder a human being is to defy God. The logic is inescapable. Abortion is an act of defiance and hostility towards God. The only thing you could do is to maybe say, well, no, the baby's not a person until it's, it's born. Before that, it's not in the image of God yet. It's just something else, but it's not a person. It's a fetus, which, by the way, is Latin for person or baby, so it doesn't make much sense. It's a euphemism. But you, you can say, okay, well, any time before that, it's not fully formed, uh, so abortion is okay. But the Bible doesn't allow that either. You see, the Bible has a lot to say about God and his interactions with humans in the womb. The scriptures talk plainly about God's interactions with fertility and pregnancy and, and infertility. And here is, here's what we see when we examine it, that God is the one. And this is very repetitive. We've seen this. God is the one who gives babies life in the womb. God is the one who can prevent babies from being conceived in the womb. In the scriptures, it's clear that if any woman gets pregnant, it's because God has given a baby to be conceived. If, if someone cannot get pregnant, it's because God has closed the womb. Again, God is sovereign. And sometimes these are hard truths to swallow, but they're what the scriptures teach. So let's look at a couple places we can see this very clearly. Genesis 16 is is very clear. So if you, it's a story of Abram and Sarai or Abraham and Sarah. I'll just call them Abraham and Sarah because that's how we remember them probably best. Now remember, they're both in their 90s, so they're well beyond childbearing age. They'd been trying to get pregnant for a long time. Nothing had happened. God had given them a promise that now, in their 90s, they would have a son. And so, based on that promise, they continue to try to have a baby. Nothing happens. They start to get confused. This makes sense, right? I mean, they're in their 90s. There's some biology at work here. But even in this situation, Sarah, when she expresses her disappointment, doesn't say, Well, I mean, it makes sense because I'm old, so of course I can't have a baby. No, look what she says. This woman in her 90s says, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. The Lord has prevented me. And again, there's much more to the story, but what I want you to see is this, that God is the Lord over the womb. God gives birth or he takes it away. And of course, later, in the story, you know that he grants her to conceive Isaac. We see a similar thing in 1 Samuel 1. It's a story of Hannah. Again, a faithful woman who could not bear children. She's trying. She's praying. And there's much more to the story. But the text tells us in verse 5 that the reason she could not conceive was because the Lord had closed her womb. It was not God's will for her to conceive at that time. He had not granted it to her yet. But sure enough, after prayer, 
The Lord hears her prayer and gives her a child. Again, what is clearly implied and taught in this text is that pregnancy and conception come from God. God is sovereign over the womb. We see the same thing in Ruth 4.13. Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Once again, the Lord gives conception. The Lord gives new life. These things come from the hand of God himself. This is why Psalm 127 can say something like this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Children are a reward, a blessing, a gift that God gives. Now again, it's hard to grasp sometimes, and there's lots of issues tied up with this. Not every pregnancy is wanted, and not every child is wanted, and some who desperately want to get pregnant do not. All those are are valid things to talk about and reason through. But the truth of this text is that God is the one who gives these things. And so David can say, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. This is an intimate, delicate process. God is active in the womb. God creates in the womb. And maybe the the best way to sum it all up is all that goes on in a woman's womb is God's work. So let's just just pause and think about that for a second. Again, these are things that maybe you've thought about before, but, but think about the implications. Again, if children are a gift from God, and they are, and God is the one at work in the womb, and he is, we've seen that, then abortion is directly opposing the gift and work of God. The person who decides to have an abortion, no matter the circumstances, takes God's gift and destroys it takes a baby from the womb, a human being bearing the image of God, and destroys it. By the very fact that a baby is growing in the womb, is God saying, I want this person to exist. And yet a human comes along and says, well, I don't. The pride, the rebellion, the defiance, the hostility of such an act is horrifying. Abortion is an act of defiance against God. Now, now, what I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is that anyone who's had an abortion has gone through this whole thought process and thinks exactly like this when it happens. I'm not saying that. Some do. You can see their testimonies. It's horrifying. Uh, many pro, pro-abortion advocates today fully acknowledge and admit the full personhood of the baby in the womb, and yet still assert their right to kill it. Right in scare quotes. But there are also many women who have been lied to and have been deceived about what abortion entails. They've been told that it's just a clump of cells. We know this. This is why so many women who view an ultrasound of their baby do not go through within an abortion. So I'm aware there are various things that go into a decision like that, But we also need to see the reality of the situation. We have to be honest. The reality of our rebellion against God when we make a decision like this or support a decision like this. Abortion is the unjustified killing of a fellow image bearer of God. It is a textbook definition of murder. And once you begin to understand that, once you see the gravity of it, pretty much all of the pro-abortion arguments fail. Well, it, it, what I like to call all the what-if arguments. Well, but, but what if a woman was raped? That's a horrifying sin. We should punish the rapist, not murder the child. 
Two injustices don't solve one. Well, what if this child is going to grow up to live in poverty and have a horrible life? Well, murder is not the solution. It's not how we deal with poverty in the rest of the world. Well, what if, what if they're going to grow up and, and they have some condition? What if they're going to have Down syndrome? That's no way to live. Ask someone who has Down syndrome. Murder is not the solution. That's called genocide. It's horrifying to think a country like Iceland has essentially eliminated Down syndrome from their population, not by some medical healing, by murdering everyone with Down syndrome. We could go on, but we don't need to. You see the logic. So, brothers and sisters, we must recognize this reality. It is the only consistent position for Christians who believe the Scriptures. It's the only position for those who claim to hold to the authority and inspiration of the Word of God. But, but this isn't some new issue. It's, it's so kind of viral and, and in the headlines these days that, again, we're tempted to think that this is some new issue in history. It's not. Abortion has existed since the beginning of time. The killing of children has been a part of almost all ancient societies until Christianity came on the scene. In the ancient Roman world, the, the popular thing was to either they would, they would have abortions, medically induced abortions through various herbs and things like that, or they would do what was called exposing their children. And so there were places that you could go and they would just take their babies and either throw them off a cliff or they would just place them out in the wilderness and leave and let the wild animals or whatever else deal with them. And historically, do you know who the ones were that would go to those places and rescue those children? It was the Christians. They would just go to those places and take all the babies and raise them themselves. Why? Because of everything that we've said. Those are image bearers of God. We can see all sorts of writers throughout church history talking about abortion. I want to show you a couple. So we can not only see abortion is bad, but how they're thinking through this issue. The Didache, which is, it's a collection, it's probably one of the earliest documents, if not the earliest document we have outside of the New Testament, probably comes from around the same time as the New Testament. It's just a collection of Christian teachings. Here's what it says. Listen to this. The difference between the way of life and the way of death is great. Therefore, do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. Even from the earliest times, Christians have opposed abortion. Since, again, all of the reasons, all of the scriptures testify to this. One of the church fathers, Tertullian, it's kind of a hard name to say, Tertullian, he's writing around 200 AD, so not that long after the New Testament, okay? Listen to what he says. For us, Christians, since we have forbidden murder once and for all, we may not even destroy the fetus in the womb, even though at that point the human being still derives its blood from other parts of the body for sustenance. See what he's saying. Even though the, the baby's not fully self-sustaining, we may not murder him then. Why? Here's what he says. To hinder a birth is merely a speedier killing of a man. Nor does it matter whether you take away a life that is born or destroy one that is preparing to be born. It is a human if it is going to be a human. You already have the fruit in its seed. You see what he's saying? And, and the, the interesting thing about that quote is I just recently heard an atheist, uh, very leftist comedian making the same argument. And yet, still saying, well, I support abortion. But he said, you can't say it's not a human life. He's like, it's absolutely a human life. People acknowledge this. John Calvin, writing in the 16th century, again, listen to what he says. The fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. And it is a monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb. 
before it has come to light. So, friends, this morning I would urge you that you cannot be, we cannot be faithful to God or to the Scriptures if we promote the cause of abortion. Instead, we must be willing to oppose the systematic killing of these children. So what should we do? What should we do? Now there's, again, there's so many things we could say. I'll just give you some bullet points. But, but first, we must, again, obey the various commands in Scripture to love God and love one another. We must obey the numerous commands throughout the Old and New Testament. This is why we can't sit on the sidelines on this issue. This is why we can't sit on the fence, because the Bible commands us to stand up for the oppressed, to stand up for the afflicted, to stand up for the voiceless and the helpless. Is there anyone more helpless, more voiceless, more afflicted than an infant in the womb? We cannot be faithful to the Scriptures and remain silent. So what do we do? Again, these are just quick. We could say a lot more about these, and if you want to talk with me or others about this, we would love to talk. Number one, we adopt. We foster. There are, there are many ways to do this, and Christians are doing a great job at this. If you look at the statistics of Christians who foster and adopt They completely blow away any non-Christians. So don't let anyone tell you, well, you aren't doing anything about adoption. Christians are. There's more to be done for sure. But there is great work being done. So let's put our money where our mouth is. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone can literally adopt a child. Many should. Many of us should. But even barring that, we can support families who adopt. There are so many ways. Adopting a child is not the only one. We can fund adoptions. We can support adoptions. We can advocate for adoptions. We can, if you know someone who's considering abortion, you could try and connect them with a family who's willing to adopt their child. And all the same goes for foster care. There's a church, I don't remember the name, in the South that thinking along these lines says, let, let, they said, let us make a big push uh, to, for foster care. And it was a larger church. They literally emptied the foster care system in their city. Can you, can you imagine the impact that that has on those children? This is how we should think. And again, this means that some families will foster, and the job of everyone else is to support those families. Number two, we've got to support women and help them when they are in need. We must help women who are considering abortions, not by telling them they're wrong. Now, of course, we have to do that. We don't want them to kill their baby. But we also have to help them and connect them with resources, support them ourselves so that they know they're not alone in this decision because that's the lie that's being sold to them. Number three, we can support ministries who are on the front lines. So our church supports CAPS, Pregnancy Center in El Cajon, you can give money, give volunteer hours to organizations like this with the sole purpose of helping women who are considering abortions. Number four, we can go down to the abortion clinics and plead with women not to kill their babies. Now, you may think that's not effective, but the people who do it have a very different story. There's a ministry you can type it in called endabortionnow.com. They have saved, just by going down to the clinics and pleading with women, they have saved thousands of babies from death. Some of our members every other Saturday go down to Planned Parenthood. And again, there are obviously people who do that in the wrong way, but there are plenty of Christians who do that in the right way. Just pleading with mothers, please, we will adopt your baby. Don't kill it. We will pay for any medical needs you have. This is what support looks like. And number five, vote. Votes matter. Legislators change things. Abortion is obviously much, much, much more than a political issue, but it's certainly not less. We cannot faithfully fulfill the command. 
to love our neighbor as ourself and support abortion. The baby in the womb is our neighbor. The woman who has an unwanted pregnancy is our neighbor. Loving our neighbor is not consistent with allowing them to kill their baby. These things do not go together. Loving our neighbor is making sure that they can make it out of the womb, that they have somewhere to go when they're out of the womb, and that their mom has what she needs to make that decision rightly. She has what she needs to support them. We can't be faithful to the scriptures and support abortion. To do that would be to forsake the commands to love. It would be to forsake the commands to stand up for the voiceless. We must, we must stand up, as Proverbs says, for those who are being led to the slaughter. And so we've seen that abortion is a horrific evil, a God-defying sin. We can't deny that. To deny that would in itself be an act of sin. Anyone who has had an abortion, anyone who supports abortion stands guilty before God. But, friends, let me tell you something. Without the blood of Jesus Christ, we all stand guilty before God. All of us, by sinning in various ways, have defied and offended a holy God. And that's not to minimize the sin of abortion or any other sin But the reality is, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. So, our attitude towards those who disagree on this issue is not one of pure condemnation. Our attitude is of other sinners who have found the mercy of Christ. Our attitude is one of pleading, of one of proclaiming the good news of Christ proclaiming a better way, proclaiming salvation that is found in the gospel. Before Jesus came and redeemed us, all of us were enemies of God. And that brings us to our conclusion this morning, that Jesus is a powerful and willing Savior. The sin of murder, the sin of abortion is not the unforgivable sin. The blood of Jesus Christ is enough for those who have had an abortion, for those who've supported abortions, even for those who have performed abortions, the radical grace of God is enough to forgive them. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Christian, when, when you placed your faith in Christ, You do not go around living the Christian life with this weight of the sins that you have committed on your shoulders. All of us are equally forgiven by Christ. (laughs) And even thinking about that is scandalous. That's the scandalous nature of grace. That you will stand in heaven before God in Christ, righteous, shoulder to shoulder, with people who have had abortions, who've performed them, with people who have murdered and killed and done all sorts of horrible things. Because God is gracious. This is what the Pharisees could not understand. Listen to two texts. 1 John 1.9. It's simple. We read it here a lot. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice it doesn't say, he is faithful and just to forgive us of some sins, not others. No, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 Peter 2.24, how can God do this? He himself, speaking of Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
it does not say he himself bore some of our sins on the tree. So for some of them we're forgiven. The other ones we should still live under the weight of that sin. No. He bore all of our sins in his body on the tree. And I want you to hear this this morning. Because statistically speaking, there are people here this morning who have had, who have counseled, who have supported abortion. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, if your faith is in Christ, you have been forgiven. The blood of Jesus, the Son of God, is enough to cover all of your sins, all of my sins. God forgives the sin of abortion. It is included in these scriptures. If you have confessed and you have put your faith in Christ, you are perfect in his sight. God does not accept you and yet make you wear a sign that says abortion or any other sin. Your identity is Christ and Christ himself. You hold his righteousness, his holiness, and his purity. Your trust is in Christ and his sacrifice, you are forgiven. Your identity is in Christ, not in any of the sins that you have committed. That is the good news of the gospel. That's grace. That's forgiveness. And it's extended to all of us. Outside of Christ, we all stand condemned before God. Yet in Christ, there is now no condemnation. And it's because of what he did on the cross. See, when Jesus was on the cross, we just read in 1 Peter, God placed all of our sins onto him. Now again, this gets weird when we think about specific sins. Jesus, God placed the sins of abortion onto Jesus. Think about that. As Jesus is hanging there on the cross, he's bearing the sins of all of his people. Specific sins, not just general sins. Abortion. Lying. Adultery. Covetousness. Slander. Murder. Whatever other sin you have conceived of or done, the weight was put on Christ. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He became sin for us, the Bible says, And so then to all who will cast themselves upon his mercy, to all who will trust in him, to all who repent and believe in him, he gives the perfect righteousness of Christ. So I want to say it again. If you've had an abortion and your trust is in Christ, you bear no guilt in the eyes of Almighty God. You are perfect and holy in his sight. You will hear no condemnation or judgment because of that. And lastly, to anyone here this morning who is outside of that, to anyone here this morning who's not trusting in Christ, the opposite is true. Salvation is only found in Christ Jesus. So if you are outside of him, you are guilty in the eyes of Almighty God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that the wrath of God remains upon you. But it doesn't have to be this way. Salvation is a free gift. You're hearing it this morning. And if you're here and you're not believing in Christ, this is God trying to get your attention. Place your trust in Jesus and he will wipe away all of your guilt. There is nothing that you have done that, has, that can disqualify you from salvation. Place your faith in Christ. If you'd like to talk more about this, come talk to me after. Talk to one of the other pastors. Talk to anyone here. We'd love to share more with you. I want to close now with a passage of Scripture that reminds us of the wickedness of sin and the greatness of Christ. Titus 3, Paul writes this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, 
hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly, Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us guessing. We thank you that you have revealed in your word how we are to live to glorify you. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning. Help us to live. Help us to fight this issue in a way that glorifies you. Lord, would our church, would our church be a beacon of hope and life and rest? I pray, Lord, that we that you would use the people of this church to spread this hope to those who are considering abortion. And Father, years down the road, that we would look back and see people alive in this church and alive around the city of San Diego who are alive because people chose life. Lord, help us to put our money where our mouth is. Teach us what it means to love our neighbor as we seek to glorify you in this issue. Burden our hearts for adoption, for foster care. Burden our wallets to support these things as well, Father. Father, help us on this issue specifically this morning to think your thoughts after you. Help us to glorify you this morning. And Lord, we thank you the mercy that is in Christ. We thank you that, that though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, undeserving of your grace, you lavished it upon us in Christ out of love for us. Lord, help us to live in light of that this morning, we pray. Amen.